Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm your host, Alex Collegian. This is a uh, interesting day. As they say, may you live in interesting times. Here we go again, to those of us who were there in 07. Uh, we have a strike imminent Monday tonight, as I'm taping this, uh, some hours away. Well, this will be a test of our resolve, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know anyone that thinks it's going to get solved, so I don't know what to think. I hope so, but too many reasons it won't, mostly because the world has changed and it's changing more and more every day. You know, for all the, as we addressed in our roundtable a couple weeks ago, for all the archaic sort of vestigial limbism of a, uh, a guild in a 21st century context, it still remains the best bulwark against rapacious capitalism. Anyway, on to bigger and better things. So it's a pleasure to introduce the second part of the Gary Carter, the vaunted Gary Carter episode. So Gary is an incredible mind, uh, very smart, very quick-witted, very creative, um, kind of everything you'd want in a guest and a mentor and a former boss and everything else and just been an inspiration for my co-host Ryan Gibson and I over the years we worked for him many years ago um, as we got into in episode one and uh, just a hell of a guy and we're glad to be able to um, expose him to this sort of longer form world he's tended to be behind the scenes although he is an actor by training and I wish he would do more of that. And I keep trying to find a role for him. In addition to being an incredible mind, he's got a great look, um, which of course is lost uh, in the theater of the mind here. But just, you'll hear the voice and you can picture the fantastically ha handsome and charismatic visage that he possesses behind the voice. So without further ado, this is Gary Carter, part two. And on behalf of my very busy producerial uh, co-host Ryan Gibson. I wish you a hearty hello on the set there, buddy. And back here at the home office, on behalf of myself, I'm Alex Collegian, and this is How I Got Greenlit. Yeah, so, so yes, I mean, the Fox Network and Fremantle certainly did well by each other in during your tenure i mean they, they one could argue mm. that they made each other on some level. it was built Fox was built on that stuff yeah well you know in, in relation to idol which of course was american idol which was of course a, a major turning point both i would say for fox uh, and, and american television and Fremantle, right uh, and simon fuller's company 19 yes. And Cal's think, career, everybody. And yeah. Cal's career, yeah, a whole bunch of people. I think that um, the 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 Fremantle narrative is that so it 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 had two seasons in the UK, right? Pop Idol, and um, the third series went very badly, largely because of the judging style, and 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 that relates to Simon Cowell, but the but. It was very hard to attract American interest in the show, actually. And it was allegedly, and I, I know her but because I've worked for her, but I didn't ask her this question. Allegedly, it was Elizabeth Murdoch who, who saw it in the UK. Who then phoned her father. Who, yeah, yeah, and she phoned her father and said, you have to buy this show. <laughs> yeah, and we all, I mean... I think any American can remember. And, that, and by the way, definition of a Big Ten show, 7 to 70, the whole family can watch. Everybody gets something out of it. Call in. Call in. Vote. Be a part of the show. Come in. Come right. in. Don't forget, it's that show. It's that show, by the way, that broke SMS texting in America, right? That is a not, yes. I mean, broke it into the culture, yes. launched it into the culture. The because before that, you didn't text. do that. You didn't communicate by SMS in that sense, and you certainly hadn't explored voting. Whereas 
the voting had, of course, been explored in other countries where SMS being a Finnish invention, gentlemen, an in- Finnish engineering gentle, uh, invention. Um, yeah, but so so it really did transform American culture also, right, in that sense. I don't yeah, think thanks, people also... Thanks again for that. I freaking hate texting. I, I, also, <laughs> I also don't think people realize that there was, uh, and this is something I learned when I got to Fremantle, that there was a whole business model behind just the texting, the financial... Uh, the financials behind the texting and and that yeah, whole... Yeah, that didn't operate in the US. in At the time, and I don't know what it's like now, in, in European jurisdictions, you could make money off text voting, right? Mm-hmm. You, 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 you collected revenue. In right. the US, we were prohibited from doing that. The SMS voting had to be free. And that's one of the reasons why we went after telecommunication sponsors. If you remember, the sponsor of American Idol was AT&T. AT&T, AT&T yeah. and Coca-Cola. Yes, right. huge, huge deals. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the, the AT&T deal was about the voting, yeah, um, but the sponsorship was a way of, I su- to put it Recouping. crudely, I suppose, for Fremantle to get revenue from the deal without an income split of the, of the texting revenue. Absolutely. And um, I, I got friendly with, at that time, the, I guess he was head of licensing or something, Olivier Gers, and he explained. Now living in Salt Lake City. Yes, yes. Uh, you're uh, French, I believe, and mm, now mm. in the U.S. But, um, and he, yeah, I mean, just the, the, the innovation of that show was so sophisticated. I mean, the, the, Think about it, like our world now, like the 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 red couch with the Coke stripe, and the everyone use it having their phones and the logos and the cups and the thing, and there's so much money that was coming in through those streams. Even like then, yet like you said, I remember it was like you know text charges may apply. Check with your carrier. I mean, there, there that was the. Before the all-you-can-eat plans that we have now, each text would cost you a certain amount of money, and it was just amazing. In fact, you could argue you guys put, you know, AT and T on the map at some level. You know, not too long after they were Ma Bell and all that. So, um, really, just it was a phenomenon, and it was interesting to be kind of like I didn't take ownership of it because why would I? But to see to be inside the sort of engine room of it and like. You know, we were lucky enough to go to a finale here and there and get sort of like backstage um, access. And it just was it was it was beyond like it was like the Oscars meets the Super Bowl meets just like it was extraordinary. I I mean, I think the last. Probably the last idol. Final U.S. final I went to, I sat in front of Priscilla Presley watching Lady Gaga, and two years before, I saw Prince live. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the success of, you know, you speak of flow and what you were trying to bring to Fremantle uh, in, in creative process, do you think the success of Amer- American Idol hindered what Fremantle tried to do creatively outside of American Idol they obviously the coffers were being filled and there was you know it was a very successful show our salaries were paid by Idol like I quickly saw that like you the company was like we are making money hand over fist but we won't forever so let's pay for new ideas having a show like American Idol so I'm making a distinction here between controlling on co-owning the format so the, the format to Idol at that time and probably now is is jointly owned by Simon Fuller's company and by Fremantle. But Fremantle has the global production rights X America and inside America it's a co-production with, with Fuller's vehicle. That and that's I'm pretty sure how it would still be. The the starting point of the show was Fuller's belief and if you believe his lawsuit, Cowell's contribution, 
to the idea that if you could have a show in which the audience identified a, a, a singer that they wanted to follow, you would, and pre, assuming you controlled aspects of that, the future career of that singer, you would be able to make more money than just out of a production of a show. That, that was the sort of, and the, yeah, and the insight. discovery. Right, and the insight did not come from the television side. It came from the music industry side. We can sell more records and we can find new talent if we have a television show that, as it were, is a version of what used to be called A&R, kind of, right? But, but we should... We should try to address the great unknown, which is the audience always decides who's a hit. So why don't we let the audience decide and make that what the show is about? Right. And then right. at the right at that moment is when we kick off their world tour and Simon will hire the Simon Cowell will hire exactly. the rock star producer of that moment and we will turn this yeah. into another perennial revenue stream years after a la Kelly Clarkson, right? Exactly. Yeah, we'll get, we'll put them in the show. We'll put those producers on and then the we'll show bring them and back. show we'll, that. Yeah, yeah, we'll have a family and a self-perpetuating arc. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, again, another brilliant business strategy, not necessarily uh, affects the, you know, regular TV audience's experience, but just the um, that further sophistication that we see all over. Well, the best example would be the best example, the best coupling example. So to put two shows together would be Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Tomorrow night at eight o'clock, these ten seats will be filled by the first ten people selected to play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And um, Big Brother. The summer sensation Big Brother is back because we know you like to watch. And and and. I'll explain what I mean. So Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came out of a company called Celador, a UK company called Celador, which was owned and run by a man called Paul Smith, who had, well, it doesn't matter, but from an early age had really wanted to be in the industry, in television. And Paul is a particularly upright and... Um, proud and full of integrity and he really believes in quality right in a, in, in in a way that is is not common in in television and this idea that who wants to be a millionaire went through a three two or three year development cycle inside Celador, including three full studio pilots paid for by Celador itself, right? And it, we're talking here specifically about 1999 going into 2000. <clears throat> and famously, it was pitched to the controller of the ITV networks, so or the commercial network in the UK at the time, ITV, um, and still. And his insight was that it should be stripped over five nights as a stunt. When I, I wanted to buy the show, right? I wanted to buy the format. I wanted to license the format to be really specific because John, John and I had the, had the videotape, had the video recorded in the UK the night it was transmitted. So you show you how the world's changed and couriered overnight to us. And we got to, the next morning, we got together and had breakfast, and we watched the show, and we decided that we needed it. I phoned Paul Smith's office. Now, I didn't know Paul personally, but I had, I had in fact, done a deal with him back in the day when I was an agent, so we'd spoken on the phone and the da 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 And I remembered one thing about him, which is that he had this very punctilious, precise, slightly old-fashioned quality about him that... that one should do exactly what one said was what one was going to do with one's partner, right? You should do precisely what you said, and that's what made you a good partner. So I phoned his office and I said, oh, it's Gary Carter here. I'm at Endemol. Um, I'd like to speak to Paul Smith. So I get Paul Smith's assistant on the phone, and I do my whole thing. I'm from Endemol, and I want to buy the show, and I'd like to um, license the format and blah, 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 and I'd like to talk to Paul Smith. 
Uh, and she said to me, well, Paul's in the studio at the moment because, as you know, the show is live for five nights. And we've had a lot of international interest in the show. And so Paul has asked me to ask all, all interested parties to write to him with their best offer and we'll get back to you in two weeks' time. And I thought, well, that's not going to cut it, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's not, not how that, I do it, son. No, and it's certainly not going to satisfy the mogul who's sitting on my head. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I talked, to, I talked again to the, further to the assistant, right, because I was brought up in the theatre, and in the theatre at the time I was in it, we had a truism that you should always make friends with the person who puts the pins in your costume, right? So I'm exercising a fair amount of charm, on Paul's assistant, and I put the phone down. I'm sitting in the in my office, and I think, "Fuck, that that didn't." Oh, I, I I said I only want half an hour of his time. That's right, I did say that. I only want half an hour of his time. So then nothing happens, and then my phone rings, and I pick up his desk phone, and my assistant says, "It's Paul Smith." I get Paul Smith on the phone, and he says to me, "I don't know what you've done to my assistant." He said, but she assures me that I would be derelict in my responsibility to my own company if I didn't meet you. So I will meet you in London at my office at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Is that okay? And I went, of course, not knowing whether I could even get to London by nine o'clock the next morning. Uh, in the room with Paul, I did one other thing. I did the pitch about Endemol. And I had a timer in my pocket on my mobile phone, and it's exactly 30 minutes. I stood up and said, right, thank you very much. I'm going now. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I asked for 30 minutes of your time. You gave me 30 minutes of your time. I'm off. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs> and he said, oh, don't be silly. Sit down, right? <laughs> and from there, we eventually did a deal for 15 countries for a million. And now I'm getting to the, what made the innovation in what way the, he, Paul innovated in the business side. So he clearly innovated in the creative sense, and I would argue that the innovation had to do with thinning the distance between the audience and the show. So on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, as you remember, on Tuesday night I could phone to ask the questions to be screened, and by the next day I could be in the show. And further than that, there would be a moment, phone a friend, where the person I was seeing on screen in real time phoned out into the audience, and there was this conversation. So he thinned the screen, which became very Early important. Early interactivity, yes. And, and very important in late, later in the reality in the thinking around Big Brother, how do we thin the screen, right? Then when I engaged with him on the licensing of the format, he was the first person I had come across, and I would argue he was the person who first did this. He said, well, before, before in my career, all the, none of the license deals that I had done had controlled the name of the show or its logo or aspects of its production. So. In the, in the early 90s, if I bought a, a game, if I sold Alex Collegian a game show in, for the US, I would just say, Alex, here's the format. Um, you can have all the rights, print publication, merchandising. Uh, you just need to pay me a certain amount of money per episode, and you need to give me a credit on the screen. That was, and, and the deal was like four pages long, right? I <laughs> literally was doing four page long yes. licensing deals. Cocktail napkin deals in the olden days. Right. Yeah. And then... But what Paul did is he had this, the instinct and the sense to understand that if the goal was to roll the show out internationally, it needed to have the same identity internationally so that wherever you are, you would see the same show, right? And so you would have this sense that it was worldwide as an audience member. So as part of the license, he insisted that the show had to be called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he gave the logo to all the licensees, right? So he gave the title sequence and the logo. We didn't have to make that. We didn't have to come up with it. He sent it. And every time he updated it or changed it or changed the music, he would just send it to you. And then he controlled the look and the feel because he's a very brilliant producer and he was pretty convinced that he had cracked it. And I don't doubt it. And he went further. He kept all the merchandising 
the secondary rights for himself because he said, if I'm going to make money out of the secondary rights, I need to control the global rights. So what I'll do is, Alex Collegian, I'll pay you X percentage and I'll account to you for it of the income I receive from your territory from the gaming rights, the merchandising rights, the board game, the in-flight, the da-da-da-da. So you'll get something, and it's two figures, so it's XX, Alex Collegian, but I don't want to hear your views about it, and you're not going to control it. I'm going to do it. And so he like recognized... A manager. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And he recognized that behind, he was the first person to make explicit that behind a show like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire could be multiple revenue streams based off its brand identity if it was careful enough, carefully enough looked after. So we were at coming to the tail end at Endemol of the Big Brother development at the time that I engaged with Paul. So I understood that this was genuine innovation and that there were things here we needed to learn from pretty rapidly. So when we developed Big Brother, there was no precedent for the licensing of Big Brother. We split the rights into categories. You had to take the television production rights, you had to take the online rights, and you had to take the secondary rights, the merchandising rights, but you had to negotiate each of those separately. You didn't get them as a sort of, as a one deal. And indeed, there were three contracts, which took a, a great deal of time and lots of lawyers to, and the, to develop. And the Union of Business Affair Lawyers thanks you every day for That's it. That's right. That's exactly right. And some of my best friends are lawyers, Alex. <laughs> but he made the innovation, you know, Big Brother made technological innovations, and I would argue is probably the most important reality show as an artifact of the last 30 or 40 years. But but Paul's innovation in how the business was conceived of was profound and changed everything. And then he decided he'd have a crack at the movies, right? Now, this is super clever. The rights that he reserved completely to himself included the movie remake rights to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Now, I used to be an agent, right? So, And I, I knew all this stuff. And I was always like, what are you... What are you thinking of here, Paul? Why would you reserve the movie rights to a game show format? And that's because what was his first movie? Slumdog Millionaire, seven Oscars, which has at its heart a young kid dealing with on who wants to be a millionaire. I'll go for D, London. Jamal Malik. You're absolutely right! Wow. Right? You were there for this phenomenon that now is an inborn part of our business. It was a little bastard vestigial limb of television when your fancy scripted show got canceled. The network would pick up, you know, the, the little humble unscripted department or whatever it was called, you know, alternative, and they would call some scrappy producer and say, you have six weeks to come up with a show. We're canceling this scripted show. Just slap something on there and we'll give you some money for it. And now it's, it's, it's a jewel in the crown, American Idol. 20 some seasons in. So we, so we have to go back to the mid nineties, right? And, and, and my first job, I was an agent for 10 years and, and, and in the early days of what became the international format industry and, and the first times that formats started to enter prime time spaces in, in particular countries. Uh, and in 95 or 96 maybe, um, I left the agency that I was working in and I started working in a television company for the first time. And that company was called Planet 24, and it was owned by three men, Bob Geldof, Charlie Parsons, and Wahid Ali. So Sir Bob Geldof, as he's sometimes called, which is slightly inaccurate, but the Band-Aid guy, and um, it's inaccurate because he's Irish and so he can't be a Sir, but he is a knight. 
so pedantic we can get, right? So yes. pedantic we I, can I get. I love knowing that stuff. And, yeah. and Wahid Ali, now Baron Ali, and in the House of, uh, the House of Lords, bless them, in the UK. So I went to work for them, and they had a special project. And that they had a they had a one of the first housekeeping deals. They were the second UK independent to have a housekeeping deal um, in in Hollywood. So they had a company in Hollywood sheltering under the arms of or the wings or the ears of ABC, right? And ABC Disney. And Michael Davies was one of the the heads of development, if not the head of development at um, ABC. Another at, legendary figure from right, the early days. Yes. Right. And he, so all of these people are my peers. They, so our lives get all sort of wound up. And, and that deal, the housekeeping deal with ABC was, was, was with Disney was Buena Vista Productions. In, the, in fact, the deal was with Buena Vista Productions. That was coming to an end. There were a group of people based there who were working on something and that deal was coming to an end. And one of the first things that the management of Planet 24 tasked me with was to go to Hollywood and get this deal renewed, right? It was, had been running for a year. It was coming up for a renewal and the relationship was a little rocky. And so obviously they needed to send a South African actor who knew nothing about Hollywood to save the day, right? So there I was. <laughs> to lecture them on, on the mm. efficacy of this deal. <laughs> exactly. And the, who was the team, Alex? This is the question. Who was leading the team in Hollywood? At Buena Vista? The Planet 24 team housed with the Buena Vista deal. Who was leading that team? I believe it was my old boss. Is that right? Which, which one? Uh, wasn't it Duncan? Exactly. Yeah. So it, was, it was Duncan Gray. And Duncan Gray was the first person to mention you to me. He said, and I always take Duncan's recommendation seriously because he's like a development um, fetishist. He said, Alice Collegian is really bright. Keep an eye on him. That right? was pretty much what he said. But nice. what, was, what was Duncan doing? Duncan he was, was well. He was bringing what what you're talking about that other culture, that the other way of looking at creativity to America. He was leading the team that developed Survivor, Alex. Yeah, this is crucial. So what I just said is, Planet Twenty Four had a team that developed Survivor under a deal with Buena Vista. There is no Mike. There's no Mark Burnett in this in this I part of the story. I still haven't heard the name. <laughs> right. So. So I took over the leadership of that group in its second year, right? Duncan went back to the UK, I think at that point, to, do, to become the executive producer of Big Brother, and then later came back to work for Lloyd Braun at ABC and, and went on to do Jimmy Kimmel, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, for years. Yeah. So, so you should get Duncan on the show. So yes. Then when after the second year of development was complete when the when the development was complete we took the show to abc because we owed it to abc because they'd paid for it and we pitched it to jamie tarsis and the team and they panicked completely they just said you're going to kill people you're insane and it was due to cost a million dollars an episode for 13 episodes because the arc Mathematically, it's 13. You're out of your mind. Yes. You, what do you mean? You're going to buy an island and you're going to rig it up and you're <laughs> going to have boats floating around the outside with a production team on? What are you talking about? So they rejected it. So I then sat with this thing I was convinced was like a, an absolute breakthrough. And I got on an airplane and I went to Sweden for reasons which I won't go into here, but I went to Sweden specifically and I sold it in Sweden. So the first production of it anywhere in the world was in 1996-97. It was a Swedish production in Swedish for the Swedish public broadcaster. And it only got on air in America four years later. And for my entire career, I've had to listen to various American executives from from Ben, he who used to be at NBC, but was it William Morris before that, Silverman, and from Mark Burnett, claiming either that they invented Big Brother or that they discovered it. 
neither of which is true. Because the, this, the question you have to ask in response to the second statement is, why did it take you four years to spot the fucking thing if it was on air in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark by the time you got there? And secondly, you didn't do... Is it not enough to truthfully say we launched it in America and we built it into the huge franchise it is. That's a big enough achievement. I mean, Burnett's achievement is mighty, right? The irony is that those two shows were sold into CBS at the same time. So Big Brother, which I went on to work on immediately after Survivor, and Survivor both went on air in 2000 in the US. And they both went on air on CBS. And there was a specific reason. And that was because the Olympics were in that year, and they were going to be on NBC. And CBS didn't want to launch, didn't want to play reruns, nor did it want to commission scripted. It commissioned non-scripted. And that proved to the American industry that format, non-scripted formats could work in prime time, and that although their budgets were high, they were not going to be as high as scripted, and the back end could be considerable. Right. And, and, and it was the beginning of pre-existing IP craziness, yes. Yes, right? Exactly. Hey, we already sold this in 10 territories. Look at the ratings. Look at the phenomenon. Exactly. So, so it was the beginning of overt risk mitigation by commissioning executives, <laughs> to, be, to put it in Harvard speak, right? <laughs> Which it's, is basically the... it's basically ass <laughs> covering. It's basically ass covering because it's the same... It's the same... It's the same thing as it, as emotion in the stock market, right? Because the fact that it's a success in 10 European countries does not mean it's going to be a success in your country, right? But, but you can always turn to your boss and say, but it was a success everywhere else, so I don't know why it failed. Yeah, that's not my fault. Mm. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And, and uh, by the way, I mean, that's, that's true of, of almost any Hollywood story is, uh, you know, the victors write the history and people take credit where credit was not due. And uh, the, the legend lives on of, you know, it's a Burnett. particular, it's a particularly Hollywood art form, I would say. I, yeah, I mean, Burnett would say, well, you know, I used to do Raid Galois and I, one day it came to me and say, like, uh-huh, okay. Um, well, he certainly made enough money from it. Good on him. All right. We're going to talk Salome. Yeah, yes, enough, we are. Enough, enough industry gab. So, so essentially, why would you asked me to choose a, a B-side movie, right? Um, and I offered up uh, Nazimova's Salome from 1923. You then asked me, what would the A-side be? And I snappily replied, Nazimova's <laughs> Camille from a year before. <laughs> the distinction to make between those two is that Camille was a huge success and, and Salome was she went bankrupt on Salome. Her. Right. And it, last film directed. Yeah. Uh, I just saw Babylon. Uh, which is out now, and I recommend. I mean, it's it's a flawed film, but yeah. it is a love letter. I, I we hear it how I got greenlit when we talk about the making of stuff. We love making of movies, singing the rain at all. Yeah. So um, it's very much that it's a celebration of this era of filmmaking. This sort of like gorgeous. Uh, you know, stylized, uh, sexy, forbidden. You know, it was the end of that uh, that that uh, pre uh, Hayes office um, mm. yes. conservatism, right? Yeah, it was. Yes. So I, th or just before, probably, probably just before. Just sorry, before. Yeah. Was, you know, with so, five years, maybe. So, so why do I think Salome is so amazing, or and and why does it interest me? What what? Impact yeah, what speaks to you? So, mm -hmm. first of all, it's essentially it has a theatrical origin, right? I mean, it is a play at its heart, and it's one of the very, one of the many, but one of the early adaptations of difficult classical texts for a form that is not verbal, right? I mean, it's a silent movie, and so this Oscar Wilde's text, which is more words in it than it has action is trimmed down and trimmed down and trimmed down by Nezimova until it's kind of 
skeletal. And she comes from the theater. She, she's Russian. She trained under Stanislavski. And I, as an actor, trained in Stanislavski and post-Stanislavski and hmm. um, techniques. So that would be the American Is this method. where you became aware of her? Is that where you, were you screening those films? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And, and she gives an extraordinary performance in it. And then as a, as a gay man, there is the, the question of how queer Hollywood is at that time. So very queer is the answer. And there's a famous legend around the film of Salome that everybody in it is either gay, lesbian, or otherwise Fluid. Yes, from yeah. Kenneth Anger's book, uh, yeah. the premise, well, first of all, Oscar Wilde, famously homosexual, yeah. that uh, all of the cast uh, were gay. That's yeah. just the, the prevailing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then it's the first American art movie. And I, I'm interested in this because it's it's an intersection between between the commercial and uh, and art and and a lot of my career, John and I had a spectacular fight where he said, "What are you a, a a creative or a suit?" I said, "It's much worse than that, John. I'm an artist." And he just said, "You're just so frustrating sometimes." Um, and and but the core, my core fascination with Salome is about performance. Is about how we perform. And I was trained in a very naturalistic tradition, and so was Nazimova. Um, and but this is the, so not that. But the, but the genre of silent movies requires you to do something else. And performance as a, as a field, we now know, is not just limited to the performance, the, to cultural performances like dances and actors and so on like Nazimova, but, but you are performing podcast hosts and I'm performing interviewer and interviewee and we know the conventions of those performances you and we you know the conventions of your podcast and of podcasts and and so performance we understand spreads through all of life after I stopped working as an actor when I became an agent I then spent 10 years working in what we would probably call the performance art arena in London in the 80s and 90s and and for 10 years or so I performed regularly at the Institute of Contemporary Arts which was the first place to show Picasso in London and has a long history of provocation in the arts and I did that because I was tired of my training which was about representing somebody else about pretending to be somebody else and I wanted to know what did it mean to go on stage as me and how me could I be? And what would it mean to perform me? And this idea is one of the core interests that I have in reality television, is how are these people performing themselves? And how does the media that we control professionally, the three of us, influence and shape that performance and mediate that performance? And how far or how close are we from real people in this scenario. So this is high professorial bullshit, right? But, but it's very, very important because we know out of the research that what interests people in reality television, and particularly women who watch reality television, is this same question. How real are these people? What are their motivations? Why are they doing this? They want to speculate about the authenticity of the people they're seeing on the screen. And so when I watch somebody like Nazimova and several of the other performers, and I, when I watch Salome, which I do watch every couple of years, and most recently I watched with my son, who's studying to be an artist, he'd never seen it, and indeed hates me showing him films, I should say. But as a sort of dad son family thing during the pandemic every friday night he would patronize me by allowing me to choose a film i thought he should see and and salome was one of those and i was overwhelmed by the fever dream quality of the whole thing it's kind of erotic vibration which is quite sensational and quite palpable it's it's deep 
queerness, to use a contemporary word, its otherness from, from what mainstream society at the time would be like. And her central ability to communicate in this highly stylized way, to, to perform in a way that told us the story and the emotional state of that person. I mean, she's playing like a 16-year-old and she's in her 40s, right? It's amazing what she does. And the mise-en-scene is amazing. But that core performance, there's something about what Nezimova does that absolutely fascinates me because I identify with where she started her training and the naturalism that she came from and identify with where Salome took her to and what she ended up with, right? So I started with Shakespeare. I ended up with Big Brother. She starts with with Chekhov, and she ends up in Hollywood with Salome. And I identify with that journey, that journey. That, gentlemen, is my pitch. Well, think about how modern it is. I mean, Indeed. It's, a, it's, a, a, it's directed by a woman. It's mm-hmm. starring a woman. It's mm-hmm. through the woman's production company. Exactly. I mean, this was, it's it, designed uh, uh, by a woman. An openly bisexual woman hiring mm-hmm. gay and lesbian mm-hmm craftsmen and women to work with her. I mean, it was so revolutionary still to this yeah. day. And her and standards are so high. You know, she's importing, she insists on the best. She's importing fabric from Paris. And, you know, it's, it. you know, the, recreating yeah. Aubrey Beardsley, you know, yeah. designs from the, yeah. from the theatrical book mm. and just gorgeous Art and that Nouveau. extraordinary headdress that the, she wears, they, the little just, light bulbs I'm, on it. I'm picturing like a giant cable behind her back <laughs> just to illuminate that. Uh, I'm like, oh, today that'd be super easy to execute. Back then, right? she was probably getting electrocuted every time. I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my eyes off of it. Like, I was like, how is that? Just the whole thing is so stunning. But the headdress, they found the just, headdress, right? They have it. It's, it's, it's knitted and coiled. And those are not lights, nor are they, they are pearls. They are reflective. Fucking great pearls. And they, yeah. the light, is you, from, the more is you reflective. look at it, you'll realize that, that the lighting is super skillful. So the lighting moves around to the bottom of the well, and then it comes out of the, out of the, the, the plate that the head yeah. is going to go on. It, it's in those pearls. It's amazing. I mean, when you think about the people, most of the people who were in that production were born in the late 1800s. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable, mm-hmm. the production value. And the, I had never seen it before. Didn't know anything well, about it. Completely opened my mm-hmm. eyes. Mm-hmm. I, I, it just, I was like, how is this made? I, I would also say about the acting, um, act, you know, I've read a lot of stuff about acting in silent films. Mm-hmm. And the, the not being able to, you're basically emoting your your all your entire being is being yes fed. you're like, you're presencing you, you're presencing yeah. mm. and it's fat it's the the her eyes the way they're like mm. there's a lot of focus on the eyes mm. and it it was just i just was like this is i can't mm. believe when was this made like i can't i i i just 20, kept looking up 23 no, tw- 23 yeah. yeah no but i said to myself how is this made in 23 like how how the vision of of what she put together again woman production it mm-hmm. it, it, it just i i thought and also i was kind of blown away at, you know people of color were in it yeah and that kind of blew me away yeah. too i have to yeah. say i mean i was like this is not it's not something yeah. you see mm-hmm. you know yeah everyone's familiar with metropolis but and this is in a- I, I always love the story behind the story behind the story so you know uh the famous or maybe not too famous to our audience, but the famous Garden of Allah Hotel was her home. That's uh, right. It, it Scene a- of many a lesbian romp. A-L-L-A, Garden of Allah, mm. because it was her name. It, it, it was changed later with an H to sound mm. as if it was more uh, kind of Middle Eastern in its, in its origins. But a famous hotel in Hollywood was on Sunset Boulevard, and everybody from Humphrey Bogart to Errol Flynn to F. Scott Fitzgerald to Gloria Stewart, to Ronald Reagan, to Robert Benchley, Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra. It was the place for uh, a brief moment, you know, another Hollywoodism, which is she was so brilliant, but, you know, her light shined for maybe all of 10 years, mm. which is which is a good run in highest this racket. Paid, <laughs> highest paid actress, I think, at the time. The, time. That's right. the, the other thing that's extraordinary, she makes a classic mistake with 
Salome, right? She puts all of them. She basically sinks the budget again in the marketing and it doesn't get a return. (laughs) Yes, the classic artist gets the best of her from the business person side, exactly. And it was also interesting to see it as a stage, like you saw it as a, they had to somehow come up with a concept of filming a stage play in a new medium. And they took advantage of that. And it also, I think there was some detriment to that. Well, of the close-up. I mean, they really... They, 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 but, but we also should remember that, that the emergence of naturalism, not that Nazimova is anyway naturalistic, but what the, the, the opening up of the fourth wall in the theater only happens in the 19th century in Chekhov, really... Because of Stanislavski, like there's a there's a direct line between what we think of as naturalistic performance in the movies and that woman. She's just not doing it there. Yeah, right? she and which is a credit. I mean, like that's that's the classic thing for every artist is. I'm sure it was back in the you know Renaissance painters, which is just give me more of that shit that we know you for. And artists are like, no. I want to try something different. Maybe I am an innovator of naturalistic things. I want to do a completely staged and like the opposite of everything I'm known for. And she pulled it off. I mean, maybe as you're saying, maybe it sort of sank her financially or whatever. Maybe she wasn't giving them what. But it's what a they lasting legacy. The other, yeah. the other thing I would urge you and your listeners to do, if we're on a on a Salome trip, is to watch that one, but also to then watch Ken Russell's Salome, which is which was made, it's called Salome's Last Dance, right? Angel of the Lord, why are you here with your sword? Whom do you seek in this foul palace? The day of the one who will die in a scarlet robe has not yet come. Yes. Well, there's many versions. We could also watch the the 50s version. With Rita Hayworth. With With Rita Hayworth as Salome, yeah. Yeah. But, But Salome's Last Dance, 1988... Mm-hmm. is pretty much verbatim to the text, but he queers it by setting it in a gay brothel. <laughs> and, and so the framing of it is, is a visit to a gay brothel where the, where the boys perform Salome. But the, wom- but the woman who plays Salome, who gave very few performances, gives an amazing performance in the film. So I recommend you watch that one. Did you ever do this play? Did you perform? Now, there's there's an irony. So um, I didn't do it. I wasn't in it. But it was produced in Cape Town in about 1984 or 5 with one of my best friends playing Salome. And I saw it. And it's a very puzzling play to stage because almost nothing happens. And it's hugely static, right? These enormous overwrought speeches by Wilde that don't have the benefit of any humor at all, but they, you know, oh, Jonathan, your eyes are like the moon, your body is like ivory, the tendrils of your hair, it goes on and on and on and on and on. It's impossible to Mm -hmm. stage. She does it brilliantly, brilliantly. Um, So yes, I saw it and it puzzled me at the time because it has the status of a classic and my friend Bryony was in it. But it's a dilemma to know how to stage because it's not a naturalistic text and you make a mistake if you try to stage it naturalistically. And in fact, she made all the right decisions. She didn't even try. Mm. And it's also a very wordy play that now it's Mm. a silent film and they had to just hack Mm. away all Mm. of that and Mm. turn it into And that went on forever. Apparently it took took her a very long time to to arrive at the script. Yeah, Yeah, I can Mm. see that. It's written before... The, the sort of West End comedies that, is, that made him famous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't well known. He wrote it for Sarah Bernhardt, apparently. Oh, nice. But it's also not his best. I mean, let's be honest. No like, way. Yeah, no I mean, way. It's, it's, it's lovely to look at. But yeah, I mean, she really took on a level of difficulty to make it compelling, which I think she did. But I'm just saying, if you look at it, like you said, it's a very static. It's very, very, very simple story. Hey, dad, kill this guy for me. No, I don't want to. <laughs> you know? So it's interesting because it was it was banned in Britain, right? It 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 really it, what, this yeah, film. Yeah, 
No, no, no. The play. Oh, the play. The play. Wow. And oh, it, it, Oscar. It wasn't allowed. So, so he must. It must have been transgressive, right? And that's probably what interested him. I mean, it, we look. A at Bible it now, we, story was banned, or was it something well, about him? Were they banning well, it's, him? It's something about. I th suspect it's the banning is because in the play, Salome's father is obviously his her lover. Right. Right in the play, and and he she he, she gets the head of John the Baptist because she has she she, she because it's fate. a trade with her father. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, yeah. What can I give you, Salome? What can I give you? You can give me the head of John the Baptist. Dance for me, Salome. Give me the head of John the Baptist. So there's this incense incest sense that you get from the play that there's something sexualized between the relationship between Salome and her father. Which the brings mother us to internet aware porn of, today. Which brings us to internet <laughs> porn today and the, the lack really of the democratic spaces. <laughs> the lack of Democrats, democratic spaces on the internet. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan, your you're eyes are spinning. Yeah. You're, 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 you I, I was just thinking, no, I was just thinking he probably wrote it because he wanted to. Uh, like he wanted a challenge. <laughs> right. How could I make this mine? Yeah. I, I mean, mean it, it. I mean, as a source IP, the Bible. I mean, if you know about him and and his background and everything else that he that's in his catalog, uh, that he did, it would be a it, to put his spin on it is a thing. That's a creative process. No, yeah, that's absolutely true. Clearly, he was doing that. This is interesting because I'm now obviously on the internet while I talk to you. It was banned in Britain. The performances of the play were brand in Britain until 1931. So, so the seven years after the movie got made. <laughs> so the movie was probably the only chance in they the had theaters. to see Oscar Wilde's Salome. Wow. I just love the credits. It's She's Name Above the Title. Nazimova. Nazimova. Sal yeah, Nazimova is Salome. With some and, other and that logo, the logo for Nazimova. Yeah, it's if you if you watch um, if you watch Camille in the cast list, everybody's everybody's credits appear in ordinary type, and hers appears it, in her in logo her, like, signature. Like yes, very much. <laughs> I noticed that too. I just love the special effects, the paper moon, you know, slightly, you know, all that stuff. Mm. It's just. There's some cool lost. smoke effects too lost. in the background. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that there was some cool smoke stuff and and uh, layering like kind it's of. It's the lighting that particularly layer. gets me, right? Because the lighting is excellent. Because in the play, the moonlight is a character. The moon is a character in the play. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then we get that hat with the little bubbles on, right? Which every leading actress should wear in every should, role, right? Everybody would love that. The, the other thing uh, I thought fascinating about the story was the relationship between her and the director and how they had a kind of a sham. They had they said that they were <laughs> he, married, was, he was her beard, as it were. He, as he it was. Were. Yes. And then, and then, but society didn't realize that until he actually ended up getting married. It, it was a relationship of convenience. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and then he ended up getting married and people were shocked because in a, on his marriage license, I think it says that he was uh, he was a single man, and people were like, "Wait, what?" They they kind of re realize an another fun fact: she is the credited, beard was revealed. She is credited with having originated the phrase "sewing circle" as discrete code for lesbian and bisexual. Oh, is isn't that, that true? Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, that great. Wow, sewing circle. I love mm. it. Which which ends up turned up in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, exactly. Of, of all things, um, that's. Yeah. God. Yeah, God, and it, I, the, this period uh, in all of the arts really fascinates me because it's it's you know it's post World War One, it's Weimar, it's this, it's that, and um, everybody's going a little bit crazy. It's the Roaring Twenties. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot about and, that. Uh, this you know the nipples and the sexual acts and I did notice the nipples. Yeah, the nip and that, the, was, the, that, was the, a, that was a that was a milestone of that era and then i don't know what brought about Shield nipples thing but you know with 10 years later you would have a dry country under prohibition 
you would have the Hayes office controlling everything in Hollywood where you have to have one foot on the floor. Uh, you know, couples can't be in a bed together. They can't touch. They can't. No do gay people I, on stage. No, gay, no, you know, maybe they no said, gay oh, actors, apparently. What a giant pearl and, necklaces and on, on the production team. <laughs> can, can I just ask you, Alex, does... Does she appear in, in Babylon? I mean, does Nazimova crop up in Babylon or Valentino? Uh, no. So what they did was they basically made uh, – there was only a few, um, you know, Irving Thalbergs and sort of in the periphery. Mm. A lot of it was amalgam characters that were oh. portraying such. Like, you know, Pitt could be arguably like a Valentino, uh, you know – Oh, we don't like his voice. You know, one of those guys that can't make the the shift. Yeah. So yeah. I think in order to get a little bodier, uh, he he just kind of um, you know used the anecdotes and the and the tales of excess, but but used his own characters to compound characters. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but we're seeing. I mean, um, I saw it with my daughter, and she really she loved it. And I was like, really? I mean, uh, this is kind of the production you know, value obscure. looks insane. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. But, you know, not to mention, she, you know, my daughter said to me the other day, she's like, social media should be banned. I'm like, what? Like, she don't want it. So I feel like there's going to be in, in 50 years, we're going to talk about millennials as a lost generation. Right. That they were at just the wrong age to be exposed to certain uh, technology that sort of stunted their emotional growth, right? And as we go, these the the newer generations are kind of more cynical about it, or maybe more aware. I don't know what's different. It could just be my daughter is her own person, but it's. It, I was fascinated. We had a long conversation about it. She also aspires to be in the arts, and she was like, "This is the worst thing for for real art." These people are not. Have, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the 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 uh, term influencer, which we all know and hate, is now being uh, replaced by creator, which I take personal umbrage at. And so a buddy of mine said, "Hey, we're looking for creators for this cool thing." And I said, "Well, here I am." And they go, "Oh, well, where, what's your Instagram account?" I'm like, "The fuck are you talking about?" Like they 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 use the word creator to mean an influencer. Now. So that's a so that's interesting, isn't it? That's a I th was thinking back as you were talking, Alex. That and then I should go. I was thinking the first time somebody introduced themselves to me and gave their profession as a reality performer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Was that recently, or was that? No, this was this was this was in the five years after Survivor. A reality in, performer. Yeah. So basically, what they meant is, I'm I'm somebody who just performs for a living in reality shows. Yeah. Oh, I thought I thought someone who was on stage at Jumbo's clown. No, even worse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, right. yeah. So I, just to, just to round off film things, of course, yes. if you're if you're interested, Ken Russell, who also made the Salome, he made a a slightly fevered biopic of Valentino, right? And in that, Nazimova appears. And she's played by Leslie Caron, the French singer-dancer. Yeah, Caron. And, Mich and Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas plays mm -hmm. Rambova, who designed the costumes in Salome. That's great. Well, you could you could describe uh, all of Ken Russell's uh, oeuvre as slightly fevered, right? More than fevered. <laughs> he's hysterical is the word I would use. Yes, he's great. Um, well, Gary, I, you have given us so much of your time. You've been very generous with your knowledge and your time. It's been awesome. We really appreciate it. Um, this has been a treat for me. Uh, a gentleman a, a, and a scholar. A treat, a, a treat for me. And, and really, Ryan, Alex, I mean... I think it's amazing that we're still in touch after 20 odd years, right? That's, that's 20 extraordinary. years. Yeah. If, if not more, no, look, I think it's almost exactly maybe more. I think it is 20 years. years. It's 20 years. It's 20 years. I think it must have been like 2002, 2003. Because mm -hmm. that's when I started consulting for Fremantle. Yeah. So yeah. 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 It's just yeah. nice to pick up right where you left off. That's when you know, <laughs> that's when you know things are good. By being lectured by me. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway, All right. Always a pleasure to learn at the at the feet of the master. So yes, that's what I'm saying. Blah, 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 blah. Well, thank you for joining us. That was Gary Carter, the man, the myth, the legend, 
just a great guy all around but i think you know I, i'll speak for ryan we'll probably have him back in the future maybe even throw him in a round table uh he can speak pretty eloquently about all kinds of things anyway thanks for joining us and uh it's really a pleasure to do this and um please reach out at instagram twitter and gmail we are at how i got greenlit thanks everybody Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.